Let me tell you this. If I'm still the majority leader of the Senate, think of me as the grim reaper. None of that stuff is going to pass. None of it. That's Mitch McConnell, one of the most powerful people in the United States, democratically elected, speaking to his constituents about policies that a majority of Americans support. And honestly, there's a good chance he's right. Because McConnell is really good at bulldozing the will of the American people. So how's he doing it? How is he getting away with it? And why? Who is Mitch McConnell? My name is Sean Morrow. I'm a senior producer here at Now This, and I love the deep dive. From serial killers to Bigfoot to black holes to whatever, I love thinking about stuff that's super interesting or super messed up. I also love thinking about government corruption and the very real conspiracies that happen every day. This new podcast from Now This is a mix of those two passions. Deep profiles of the most powerful people in Washington and beyond. The people molding our world and determining our destiny. Told through interviews with folks who've known them for years. There is no Illuminati. There's no shadowy group of lizard people secretly controlling the world. There's no deep state, unfortunately. But there are these people. We'll be like your mind hunters of politics, breaking down how and why the powerful do what they do, how they think, and what they might do next. First up, the self-declared Grim Reaper, Senate Majority Leader Addison Mitch McConnell Jr. Born in 1942, McConnell went from high school politics to a county executive role to the Senate, where he rose in power within his party to Senate Majority Leader. So how'd he do it? I headed down to Kentucky, McConnell's home state, to speak to some journalists who've been following him for decades, like John Cheeves in Lexington, who shared this story from McConnell's brief stint as a teacher in the 70s. I got this one of his students at the time. Uh, he went into the first day of class, walked up to the chalkboard to these political science students and said, I'm going to teach you the three things you need to succeed in politics and to build a political party. And he scribbled on the chalkboard and stepped away. And the three things were money, money, and money. Chiefs is a reporter for the Lexington Herald Leader, one of the two biggest newspapers in Kentucky. After I spoke to him... I drove a little bit deeper into the state to Midway, a small equestrian town. Like, really small. Like, I met the mayor by accident small. He gave me his Wi-Fi password. I was there to meet Al Cross. Mitch McConnell's approach to politics, I think, is illustrated partly by the message he used to have on his voice recorder at his home. You'd call the number and you'd get the recording and he'd say, this is Mitch McConnell, you've called my home. If this call is about business, please call my office. <laughs> he views politics as his profession, his business, and he goes about it in a businesslike way. And of course Cross would have talked to McConnell on the phone. He covered Kentucky politics for decades at the Louisville Courier-Journal and has met McConnell numerous times. I kept driving across the state and got to Louisville to visit Philip Bailey at his home. The story goes, Senator McConnell's at an event. And a guy comes up to him and shakes his hand, shaking it really hard. And says to him, you know, I'd never vote Republican. Yeah. But I'm definitely going to vote against that son of a bitch from Louisville. <laughs> and McConnell, the story goes, McConnell just keeps shaking the guy's hand. Yeah. 
right? Not acknowledging that he himself yeah. is from Louisville. Born and raised in Louisville, Bailey is the political writer at the Louisville Courier-Journal, the biggest newspaper in Kentucky. He's known Mitch McConnell since 2002 when he was named a Mitch McConnell scholar. I'll start with the simple stuff. Who is Mitch McConnell? Mitch McConnell is the majority leader of the United States Senate and as such is one of the most powerful people in the United States. Senator McConnell is the senior senator of Kentucky, but probably more than anything is, uh, I would say, power. I mean, there have always been those of us who've covered Senator McConnell, whether it's been five years, 10 years or 30 years. People always say, you know, Senator McConnell doesn't really have sort of a conservative belief system. He has a belief system of personal power and, and using that. Uh, at his will. He was fairly unremarkable at first. He was one of 100 senators, had no particular talents uh, beyond the other 100 senators, no particular expertise or portfolio. Uh, he made money his expertise. He made campaign fundraising his expertise. He decided very early that he wanted a political career, and he was very adept, even as a teenager, in getting votes. Mm -hmm. He runs for student body president, and who does he go to? The cheerleaders and football players. Mm -hmm. He gets the popular people to be for him, and he gets elected. After high school, McConnell spent some time doing something that might surprise his more progressive detractors, fighting for civil rights. He spoke at freedom rallies and urged his peers to march on Washington with Dr. Martin Luther King. Eventually, like many young men his age, he was threatened with having to be involved in a war that many Americans thought completely unjust, Vietnam. But he got out of it. He spent just a period of days, uh, perhaps a couple of weeks in basic training. Uh, his uh, father made a call to a, a senator that he had served with here in Kentucky as an intern, as an aide. The senator contacted a general in the army expressed the concern that, that young Mitch wanted to get out and go to law school at New York University. During the draft, college deferment was kind of common. It was not getting drafted because you had an education lined up. Lots of people did it. But it was odd because Mitch had already graduated from law school. He already had a law degree. But uh, the records show that his dad contacted the senator who contacted the general. It went on paper as a medical discharge for an eye condition. So he was let free from the army and uh, went back to civilian life. He did not go to New York University Law School, as you'd expect, since he already had a law degree. He seems to see okay right now, although he does wear thick eyeglasses. So it could be that he has some sort of vision difficulty even to this day. Uh, many of our nation's leaders did not serve in Vietnam um, for reasons that I guess are between you know them and, and their doctors and perhaps their conscience. I think one thing you have to say about McConnell is that uh, he's been very adaptable mm -hmm. to circumstances and uh, the positions that uh, he is in. Uh, his objective uh, was always to be a United States senator. Mitch McConnell had a difficult uh, uphill battle to take out an incumbent U.S. senator. And so Mitch McConnell used to uh, complain and say, Dee Huddleston has been, you know, bought and paid for, and what's all this special interest money buying from Dee Huddleston? McConnell enlisted some help. A real heavy hitter. Roger Ailes. Yes, the one you're thinking of. The one who would go on to work on a number of Republican campaigns and eventually head up Fox News, taking it to the esteemed place in American dialogue it holds today, before resigning in disgrace for various accounts of sexual harassment, getting a job on the Trump campaign, and then falling down and dying. But before all that, Ailes worked for Mitch McConnell 
and crafted one of the most iconic political ads of all time. You're not missing much visually, just a man with a bunch of bloodhounds looking for Dee Huddleston. We can't find Dee. Maybe we ought to let him make speeches and switch to Mitch for senator. McConnell casts his opponent as someone missing important votes in favor of paid speeches. What McConnell has mastered, and he sort of invented negative campaigning, is it doesn't matter what you think of me, it matters what you think of this other person. He's really right. good at dragging down his opponent. He won by a little over 5,000 votes. I think when Reagan carries the state uh, by hundreds of thousands of votes and uh, McConnell only wins by about 5,000, uh, you have to say that uh, he wouldn't have won if not for Reagan. Seemingly unafraid of the bloodhounds or hypocrisy, he started making paid speeches like immediately. NPR dug up documents showing that McConnell got 2000 bucks and a trip to Florida in exchange for a speech to the American Tobacco Institute within a week of starting his new job. A week. That's before most people even find a good place to get lunch at a new job. It was the beginning of what would be a long and beautiful relationship between the senator and the tobacco industry. And many more industries. Pretty, pretty much every industry. We'll look into how McConnell as senator would seize the amount of power he has today. And how it changed the way American politics work at large and possibly forever. But first, much like Mitch McConnell, we've got some corporate sponsors. It's 1985. Back to the Future came out. The original Nintendo was released. America began selling weapons to Iran in what would begin the Iran-Contra scandal. And Senator McConnell is Senator McConnell. I'm going to point to two things from his first few years in office that are super interesting in retrospect in 2019. Let's cut the synth, because this is a sad part. In September 1989 in Louisville, a 47-year-old man went to the printing company where he worked, took out one of his four assault weapons, and opened fire, killing eight and wounding 20, before turning the gun on himself. This was 10 years before Columbine, a quarter century before Sandy Hook, 30 years before El Paso in Dayton. As the home senator where the 1989 attack happened, McConnell needed to respond. He wrote, quote, I'm deeply disturbed by the recent outbreaks of violence in our state and believe we must take action to stop such vicious crimes, end quote. Which sounds like the right track. But he goes on. We need to be careful about legislating in the middle of a crisis. Sound familiar? We're still in the middle of that crisis, and we're still not legislating. And that language has been used by politicians ever since. Just months after the 1989 shooting, McConnell would put out ads accusing his opponent of trying to take people's guns away. Second thing. In 1991, in response to a bill that would have made it significantly easier to register to vote, McConnell wrote an op-ed titled, Should the U.S. Simplify Voter Registration? He wrote, quote, Relatively low voter turnout is a sign of a content democracy. We should ask ourselves, how easy should voting be? Is it too much to ask that people have a passing interest in the political process 10, 20, or 30 days prior to an election, and that they go down to the courthouse or the library to register? Philip Bailey asked McConnell about this one of the first times they ever met. I've known Senator McConnell for about 17 years now. And I remember we talked about, for example, automatic restoration like in Australia. Yeah. Or required sort of mandatory voting. And Senator McConnell certainly did not like or enjoy that idea. His idea was was that, yeah, like you should, voting should be a chore almost. Yeah. It should not be something that is sort of given over. 
And you, there are different theories about why that is. I mean, part of the, the resistance to felon voting rights, for example, both here in Kentucky and in other places, has been, well, who are we registering? Right. Who's going to benefit if felons get their rights back? And right. uh, that would clearly be like, for example, African-American voters. Right. And African-American voters, by and large, are not Republican voters. Putting this podcast together, I watched tons and tons of old clips of McConnell. So when I was thinking about voter participation, you know, the idea of deciding who gets to participate in American democracy, it reminded me of this uh, 1987 interview McConnell did about money in politics. Does it concern you that candidates for Congress spent $450 million running for office last year? Not particularly, because that meant an awful lot of people participated by contributing to them. $450 million sounds like a lot, but that was the late 80s. In 2018, the number was $5 billion, making it by far the costliest congressional election in U.S. history. That is the kind of participation McConnell wants. Not the ease of casting a vote for the average American, but the ease of pouring money into politics. So his great issue especially early on in his Senate career when he wasn't in leadership yet. But the, the issue that he learned sort of more about than anyone else and became an expert on was campaign finance. That was Alex Perrine. He was an editor at Gawker during its heyday, and he's been covering McConnell for years. He recently wrote this great McConnell feature for The New Republic, where he currently works. It was called Nihilist in Chief. I think McConnell just wants to create a state in which he is the Senate majority leader. <laughs> and money in politics is key to that goal. But it's another thing McConnell flipped on. In 1973, he wrote, The going price for public office has continued to escalate in recent years, further emphasizing the need for truly effective campaign finance reform. That's Mitch McConnell speaking, not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was negative 15 years old. So when did McConnell realize that the key to victory was cash, no matter what it meant for his values, existent or not? It really was all the way back in his first election. Um, he ran in 1977 for county executive in Louisville. That was his first uh, real election, and he won it. But it was a tough race, and he came out of that experience just realizing how important it had been for him to have enough money for ads and whatnot. That's Alec McGillis. He works for the truly amazing ProPublica and wrote the book on McConnell, a deeply researched biography called The Cynic. Cynicism lies deep at the heart of his political philosophy, his political approach, that he's in fact not um, some sort of ideologue, not some sort of real conservative ideologue, but instead someone who has, uh, has constantly tried to do whatever he can to acquire power, to rise in the ranks, in Washington um, and, and sort of set himself and his party up for future successes. McConnell for years was a strong cold warrior against China. Mm -hmm. Basically, the U.S.-China Business Affairs Committee just started giving him a ton of money and then he sort of just turned around on a dime and announced that he now supported a most favored nation trading status with China. This wow. is back in the Clinton years. Um, and he, so, he, you know, he's, it, was, it was just funny because it's just sort of like cartoonish and transparent, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, when you think about how money interacts <laughs> with politics, you very rarely picture it as someone's getting a briefcase of money and then saying, oh, that's my belief now. But that's, yeah. is that basically what happened? You know, and I, uh, right, not to uh, open myself up to, to calling it a crime because it wasn't, <laughs> there was no criminality involved, but it was basically that like, he cultivated new donor sources. In this case, it was uh, Chinese business people doing business in the United States. And he, you know, cultivated them as a donor source, or they cultivated him as a uh, someone to receive their donations. And 
Um, he just sort of immediately threw out what he had previously painted as a very sincerely held position of principle, which is that right. you know he was he thought we should get tough on China, and then he decided we didn't have to. <laughs> Let's check back in with John Cheese and Al Cross in Kentucky. He's one of the few politicians I know who likes to raise money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he sees it as uh, a validation of himself. You know, if people are willing to give me money, then it shows they appreciate my service and I think I do a good job. Uh, I'm sure he realizes that they're trying to buy influence, but, uh, you know, you can look at it any way you want. And today, as majority leader, uh, he raises money from almost everybody uh, uh, who is uh, uh, on right of center or even some who are slightly uh, left of center. Uh, a lot of non-ideological lobbying interests out there. Um, and because he raises money from everybody, it's hard to tag him with being a servant of one particular interest or another. Uh, you can uh, make the broader charge that uh, he is the servant of moneyed interests. McConnell's not a tall man or a handsome man or a particularly brilliant speaker, although he's a perfectly fine speaker. Um, his uh, great talent is uh, is fundraising and uh, knowing exactly how he can match interest groups with uh, desire to see the Senate do certain things to uh, funneling money into the system and funneling that money to candidates and to incumbents who need it to get elected or to get reelected. How do you motivate independent thinkers to hold the party line? force them to choose between their values and the funding they'll see for their re-election campaign. Mitch McConnell excelled at this. He served two terms as the uh, chairman of the Senate Republican Fundraising Committee, uh, raised hundreds of millions of dollars from all sorts of people um, and interest groups that had business before the U.S. Senate, uh, and excelled, raised records amounts of money, impressed his colleagues, and came out of it uh, first as the Senate Republican whip, Mm -hmm. which is the number two position, And then finally, um, after Bill Frist left office, uh, was promoted to the role of Senate Republican leader, and then obviously today is the majority leader. Um, And this was largely based on his ability to raise money. And so he has been adamant from from early on about keeping the money flowing and fighting any kind of legislation that would clamp down on money in politics. How does he get away with it? Because Americans don't give a shit. And McConnell knows it. McConnell famously said that voters are about as excited about campaign finance reform as they are about static cling. It's just not a winning issue. And he's right. You can, in fact, you know, be pretty naked in your pursuit of it and not get in trouble. That's how Mitch McConnell amasses power. He raises money and uses the power he's gained from raising money to keep the money flowing. The policy issue he cares about most is campaign finance reform because it's all about the game. Well, the other, the other, the other great priority is the judiciary. It's filling court seats um, across the federal judiciary, not just in the, on the Supreme Court. But that again is because of the game. The judiciary has huge influence over elections. Whether you know when it comes to ruling on campaign finance restrictions and whether or not they're they're constitutional. Uh, ruling on gerrymandering, ruling on voting rights, all these different ways in which courts have an enormous impact on actual elections. I've heard that the Senate over the next year or so, and certainly in recent months, has pretty much all but slowed down all other business. Mm -hmm. All other legislation has come to a standstill 
and it is going to become a judicial appointments factory. NPR says that in the two and a half years Trump has been in office, the administration has appointed nearly one in four of the nation's federal appeals and one in seven district court justices. That is a huge amount of control over the judiciary. This seems pretty messed up. Whatever happened to checks and balances and the three branches of government? I called up my high school government teacher, Mr. Liberti, for a reminder of how this is supposed to work. Sure, and I'm surprised that after having you know, taken my course in government politics that this didn't stick with you, but I'm, I'm happy to give you a refresher course if it helps. So the, the basic concept between you know, separations of power is pretty straightforward. I mean, the idea was that each branch of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial, um, would be you know, relatively independent of the others. Where we are today is a bit unusual, where you have uh, one uh, particular leader, in this case, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, playing such a large role uh, in uh, not only the uh, sort of selection uh, of um, judicial nominees, but also in moving them through uh, at a pretty rapid pace, um, something that we didn't see under previous administrations. McConnell worked throughout the Obama administration to block Obama appointments to keep as many of these uh, seats open as possible all across the federal courts. And then when a Republican came back into office, uh, they were ready to basically blow up the rules, including the filibuster, the 60-vote uh, requirement for Supreme Court nominees. You know, there are conservatives who want control of the courts for generations because they care very deeply about conservative policy. But I do think for him it was always just a lot more <laughs> about installing um, a sort of judiciary that um, would create the conditions that would allow Republicans to continue winning elections indefinitely. Just to make it feel as if it doesn't matter what you do, general feeling that um, your voice doesn't matter, so your participation in the political process, uh, why you shouldn't even bother. These are lifetime appointments. And so for the next generation, uh, not to be macabre, but long after Mitch McConnell, who's right. in his 70s, is gone, and Donald Trump, who's in his 70s, is gone, uh, you and I will be living with the judges that they are appointing right now. But how do Kentuckians feel about all this? You know, the people actually voting them in every six years? I'm not going to try to be one of those coastal journalists that goes down and spends a few nights in a Holiday Inn Express and uses a bathroom in a Waffle House and pretends to know everything about middle America. I don't know shit. But I did see a few different kinds of Kentucky. I saw the postcard, Rolling Hills, beautiful farmland, fog-covered Kentucky. I saw Rush Hour Highway, Kentucky. I saw a strip malls and gas station district that looks like literally anywhere else in America, Kentucky. At one point, an Uber driver showed me his gun. But what do these folks think of their super senator? Back at Philip Bailey's house, I learned what Louisville thinks of McConnell. Oh, if you ask anyone in Louisville, you'll probably get a couple of four-letter words. Yeah. Um, senator McConnell has consistently lost Louisville, even though he lives here, and this was his sort of political uh, origin, his home. Um, but again, McConnell isn't someone who people speak about with personal affinity. Right. Right? He's not someone who you'll... Get people saying, oh, I, I, I have a personal affection or love. Like, it's it's a power relationship. Uh, so, Mitch McConnell is is not hugely popular in Kentucky, but he keeps winning as, as Well, let's, let's uh, give the facts. You know, yeah. the morning consult poll says he's the most unpopular senator in uh, any state. Wow. Um, but you have to remember, polls like that essentially run the person against themselves. Right. Mitch McConnell isn't being compared with anyone in that poll. Uh, what it appeals to uh, or what that question gets at is, 
a lot of people's uh, sense that uh, uh, McConnell's not really uh, uh, doing that much for the state and he's uh, in it for his uh, personal interests. Uh, and there's even a, uh, you know, probably 30 percent of the Republican Party in the state uh, has never really warmed up to the guy. He doesn't right. have uh, a great personal following. He doesn't have a great personality. But he's smart enough at politics to understand what drives people's votes. And uh, he knows how to run a campaign. So how does he keep winning? Back to Bailey's living room. This is why I think people need to start identifying what identity politics is. It's not just in black and brown neighborhoods and right. urban neighborhoods. Identity politics is a part of rural politics. Yeah. Senator McConnell understands that. That's why he makes the point about being uh, the only congressional leader who's from rural America, from middle America. He's making a, a cultural identity point in, in saying that. And that's been quite effective. Um, that's such a great point because yeah. people throw around identity politics as if it's just about like, you know, using the right pronouns or political correctness. But it's it's way deeper than that. There's way more to it than that. It affects everyone. Yeah. Every, everyone in this country has at one point played identity politics, yeah. appealing to sort of that base feeling. Kentucky is a state that uh, often gets made fun of. Uh, we don't rank very high in uh, uh, many good things, and we do rank high in a lot of bad things. Comedians will tell you that the word Kentucky is naturally funny because it has two Ks. We get a lot of crap. And I think uh, uh, one of McConnell's greatest assets is that uh, uh, he is able to stand before the world as uh, a Kentuckian, and uh, Kentuckians feel some uh, pride in that. Uh, he's uh, running on hemp, yep. and if yep. anybody should run on hemp, it's him. Yeah. Uh, he got it done. Um, the other thing he has to run on, though, is Trump. McConnell's relationship with Trump is fascinating. McConnell looks at Trump like he looks at anything else, uh, a tool to get votes and money. But he's a tool that's completely erratic, like a self-driving car that should theoretically just take you to your destination the most efficient way possible, but might swerve into McDonald's for a few hamburgers and a Diet Coke or just start blasting ethno-nationalistic screeds out of the horn. When Donald Trump uh, was uh, the almost certain nominee mm -hmm. uh, in May 2016, McConnell uh, you know, took a big gulp and endorsed him. He needed to practice solidarity with uh, uh, the presumptive nominee of his party. I don't think he uh, had any expectation uh, uh, as the campaign went along that Trump would win, right. uh, especially after the Access Hollywood uh, uh, mm -hmm. incident. Trump maintained his position in polls. Toward the end of the campaign, McConnell began to see that, hey, this guy might win after all. So uh, he became a little more uh, outspoken uh, for Trump. And uh, on election night, uh, I think he still believed that uh, uh, Trump was going to lose and that, in fact, the Republicans might lose the Senate. In fact, Trump won and probably helped Republicans retain the Senate. Yeah. Uh, one of the better images of uh, all that uh, uh, was in the New York Times Magazine profile of uh, McConnell. They said that uh, for McConnell, Trump was like a comet coming in through the window of his office and uh, exploding in the fireplace mm -hmm. and raining him with dollar bills. <laughs> so as long as it keeps raining dollar bills, McConnell will play ball. Money equals power in politics, right? He understands power. He yeah. understands that I'm working with a president who from time to time will 
say something to me in private and maybe will tweet the exact opposite a few hours later. Yeah. I don't think that he uh, he likes or enjoys President Trump's style. I have repeatedly asked him about different you know messages and tweets the president has put out. And he says to me, Philip, I'm not ever going to engage you about the president's tweets. Is it the party of Trump or is it the party of McConnell? That's what Alex Perrine wrote about in Nihilist in Chief. I think it's much more the party of McConnell. I think when Trump took office, there was this idea that he and McConnell wouldn't get along that well um, because uh, McConnell was still sort of seen as a more old-fashioned type of Republican. Um, but they've turned out to be absolutely fine working mm-hmm. partners. I've always sort of thought McConnell was a moderate Republican because he believed that was the best thing to be politically, if that makes sense. Like he he thought moderate Republicanism was a better ticket to winning elections than being a than being a far right Republican. But when Reagan won election, um, McConnell basically was like, "All right, that's what it takes to win. That's what I am now." And he didn't he didn't look back. And so, if anything, the way the what I see here is. Trump is a repeat of that for him. Right. Instead of saying, I can't let this Trump guy take control of the party, he just saw Trump win and said, that's what it takes to win elections now. I'm fine that's with good. that. Um, and so it's, it's irresponsibility over many years. At no point uh, stopping and saying, um, we're tapping into something very dark. Right. We shouldn't do that. Uh, at no point saying, you know, we're, we are relying on racial resentment and stirring up these very toxic and ancient forces in American history, um, we're not, we're not like, instead of tamping down on that and, and at any point trying to pull the brakes, it's just going with the flow because it helps uh, your own political fortunes and the political fortunes of your donors. And, and so he saw Trumpism, I think, very quickly, after the election at least, as being perfectly compatible with his political project and so therefore has had no problem with it. McConnell's game playing is even tied to Trump's actual election, how he ended up in office. Alec McGillis explains. The moment where, where the country could have found out just how much Russia was, was trying to influence the election in 2016. Mm-hmm. We are the, in September of 2016, the uh, FBI and CIA are getting all this information on, on just how much Russia's actually meddling and and just what a threat they're posing. Obama and, and the top congressional leaders are made aware of this and Obama wants to to just put that information out there just so that people the country knows that this is going on. He had support to do that for most people um, in Washington, including as I recall, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan, the then Speaker of the House, would have said, Yeah, we got we gotta get this out there. And it was Mitch McConnell who um, who said don't you dare do that. If you put this out there, I will cast it as a, as a partisan gesture, as a, as a partisan attempt by you, President Obama, to, to help Hillary Clinton by, by letting people know that the Russians are trying to help Donald Trump. And, and I will basically make this, turn this into a divisive kind of episode. So looking at all of this, say you're someone who politically disagrees with Senator McConnell or someone who believes that I don't know, the federal government should operate with the will of the people in mind rather than the power and riches of a select few? Should you be completely discouraged by what McConnell's done to our government? When you think something is going to change overnight, if you believe in it so passionately, so deeply, whatever the issue is, whether it's police brutality, climate change, whatever, 
and you're revved up, you're young and you're idealistic and you're all your friends and maybe you're a part of a big giant like hundred thousands of people protest. Yeah, he's the person who's going to stop all that. I think, I mean, a, uni- a unifying way to think of it is that is that McConnell has managed to um, preserve the power of a minority in the country for some time to come. Not forever, but, but has certainly managed to extend the power of a dwindling share of the electorate. All these numbers showing that with the country growing ever more diverse, with younger voters voting ever more democratic, and with the Republican Party becoming ever more homogenous, ever more the party of older white folks and, and, and also white voters without college degrees. So the Republican Party is, is, has in a way really become a minority party in the country. But despite that, they now hold power and control across you know, all three branches of government. Sometimes I'm very pessimistic about how long it will take to dismantle what he's done. Um, and other times I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, the next generation of Americans just is adamant enough to demand that it be done. So is what he's done amoral at all? Or is it just really smartly playing the game? It's, is it like being in the NHL and just getting a morbidly obese goalie to block the goal? And no <laughs> one's going to like it, but you, there's no reason you can't do that. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's definitionally amoral in that he doesn't care about the results of it, right? And I think and and my my cover story about him was called nihilist in chief. Um, I I think he's um, an instrumentalist in the sense that what he cares about is achieving the sort of short term goal of uh, winning the next election, mm-hmm. uh, and then the longer term goal of preserving Republican power, despite whether or not a majority of Americans want Republicans to maintain power. Right. What are his weaknesses? As if we're talking about a movie villain. Well, what what are Mitch McConnell's weaknesses? I, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure. I kind of like thinking of it this way because it kind of makes him out to be some kind of a. I, I'm bothered by the, the talk that he's some kind of all master strategist, tactician guy. Right. He gets talked about like that that way a lot by, by the political press in Washington and the pundits. When the fact is that it's just that he's more willing to play outside the rules. Who is Mitch McConnell? Not a supervillain. Not even the Grim Reaper. Just somebody who's willing to play outside the rules. This isn't about Republicans or Democrats. It's about democracy. Or lack thereof. McConnell's strategy is to make you not give a shit, to make you feel hopeless, to drive the government further away from the will of the American majority towards a tiny minority of powerful donors. But he won't be in office forever. In 2020, Mitch McConnell is up for re-election. McConnell won his first Senate race 35 years ago by just 5,000 votes, beating the incumbent in a surprise victory. This time, is he the incumbent at risk? This has been Who Is from Now This and iHeartMedia. Thank you to our experts, John Cheeves at the Lexington Herald-Leader, Al Cross, director of the Institute for Rural Journalism at the University of Kentucky, Philip Bailey, political reporter at the Louisville Career-Journal, Alex Perrine of The New Republic, Alec McGillis of ProPublica, and Joseph Liberti of Mamaroneck High School. Next time, we'll cover two of the most powerful siblings in America. One a warlord whose organization allegedly massacred civilians during the war in Iraq, the other responsible for America's children, and quite possibly, your student loans. 
It's Eric Prince and Betsy DeVos next week. I'm Sean Morrow. Thank you for listening. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. It's produced and written by me, Sean Morrow. Michael McDowell is our producer. Emily Feld is our coordinating producer and researcher. This episode was edited by Jeremy Schmidt and Ernie Indradot. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Rob Baynard. David Zwick is supervising producer. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Julia Hoff and Matt McDonough for additional direction, and to Amanda Earle and Margot Wall for production support.